This podcast is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. Since 1873, the Naval Institute has provided an open forum for thoughtful discussion of the most important issues facing the sea services and national security. Become a member today. Go to www.usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings, and I'm here in studio in Beach Hall, despite the coronavirus, with my co-host, Ward Carroll. But we are practicing all of the right social distancing recommendations. We definitely are. Yeah. The Naval Institute is open for business, but it's not business as usual. No. We are, uh, uh, as uh, our CEO, Pete Daly, um, put us on uh, a, a you know, change in business last Thursday, we've gone to a mostly work from home. So we have a few people in Beach Hall. And we when we are here in Beach Hall, we're wiping down surfaces, we're using the Clorox wipes, we're They're right here, washing our hands, close at hand. we're keeping six feet distances or more between us. Uh, staff members are kind of coming and going, getting things done that they have to do uh, very quickly and then going back home again. So most of my team, including you, Ward, uh, we're up on GoToMeeting every morning at nine from our home offices. And we're cranking out the May issue of Proceedings, uh, starting on that right now. We're cranking out the next issue of Naval History Magazine. We're publishing proceedings online and we're coming in to do episodes of the podcast and very little else. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it, we're, we're able to maintain business, but as I said, not business as usual. So our core member, the, the constituency we serve since 1873 is, you want to talk about business as usual, ships are not returning from deployment because of coronavirus. The accession sources are, taking new people in and training to replace those who will be either leaving the service or retiring or whatever um, their circumstances are. Um, so as you've said, our mission is to make whatever mitigating circumstances we're dealing with as members of, of the societies we live in. Um, we want that all to be transparent to uh, the end user. And uh, I think so far we're succeeding. Yep. And uh, I'll, I'll point this out because we haven't talked about it since we were at, in San Diego a couple of weeks ago for West, but uh, sometimes it's better to be lucky than it is to be good. Uh, in this case, we were both, but we were definitely lucky. That's West. the methodology behind my golf game, by the way. <laughs> we were, the Naval Institute was definitely lucky with West this year. It was two and three March. It was in San Diego. It was completely subscribed. We, we sold out every square foot of uh, floor space in the San Diego Convention Center that we could. We had record attendance. We had 8,000 people there. It was a great, great show. And, and all the speakers, the all, only mitigating circumstance was congratulations testimony, not right. coronavirus. Right. That's right. Um, so the wave crashed out behind us. It absolutely did. Uh, so sea airspace has been canceled. The Naval Academy Foreign Affairs Conference that we were participating in has been canceled. Um, and everything until further notice uh, is, is either postponed or outright canceled. So you're right, Bill. We were very lucky to get West accomplished this year. Yeah. And our, our next big event uh, for the Naval Institute was scheduled to be 30 April at the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. That's our annual meeting, which is always a great event. Uh, as right now, that's probably on hold. 
um, probably will be canceled. Uh, and we haven't made the official haven't, ruling. Haven't made the ruling yet. Uh, working with the, the the venue there and trying to figure out whether we can have it or whether we switch to a webinar or whether we postpone it and do it later in the year. But our conferences team is working on that. Other than that, it is. Uh, again, business not as usual, but we're open for business here at the Naval Institute and all the products and books and magazines and websites, et cetera, that you count on uh, are going to continue to be produced. Okay. Well, let's go to our guest. Uh, our guest on the line from uh, Newport, Rhode Island, from the U.S. Naval War College is Professor Jim Holmes, who is a prolific proceedings and naval history author. He uh, writes um, most recently, and we just started this uh, a few months ago, uh, he writes a column that we call Strategy Matters. And uh, Jim, I really appreciate that when we started that off, it's a short, um, about monthly, uh, sometimes more than monthly, thousand words, 1500 words. And, um, he said, you know, I'd like this to be the, the target audience of this is lieutenants and lieutenant commanders, maybe chiefs, senior chiefs. Uh, I want junior people to think about strategy and start getting in the practice and habit of strategy early in their careers that rather than waiting to when they go to the war college or waiting to when they go to senior war college to start to think strategically. So Jim Holmes, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Gentlemen, glad to be with you. Uh, I think I've been lucky, and as opposed to good, uh, just like you all, uh, I just happen to be—I just happen to be not teaching this term. I'm uh, spending a term in what we call reserves, so I'm doing lectures and whatnot. But uh, mostly, I am uh, mostly I am writing. So that's uh, that's a good opportunity to sit here in my pajamas and uh, and do that. So, Jim, a couple of your recent columns uh, as strategy matters, uh, you wrote back in uh, September. Competitors get a say in readiness too. Uh, I don't want to make fun of the current situation, but perhaps apropos in November, you wrote a zombie fighter's guide to strategy. And some may say that, you know, what we're currently dealing with in terms of coronavirus and things uh, might, might apply to some of that. And then in October, you wrote uh, eight lieutenants deliver a tough message, which was the message warden I saw um, when we were at Tailhook in September, where we had a, a JO panel of WTIs and, and SFWTIs who all said, uh, from what their perspective was that the that the Navy was not ready for peer competition and the peer fight. Uh, so th that's a smattering of, of some of your recent um, columns for us. Uh, what's in your head right now as the nation reels from this coronavirus, the world reels from this uh, pandemic? Uh, what kinds of things are you thinking about in terms of uh, strategy and strategic um, planning? Well, as it happens, I just put uh, just put the finishing touches on uh, on my most recent piece for you all, which is not related to the to the uh, pandemic situation at all. So that's uh, I'll, I'll put that teaser out there for readers in the future. As far as the pandemic itself, I my I mean anybody in my position when we teach a curriculum deeply grounded in history is going to reach for historical comparisons to things that have happened in the past that uh, that bear some resemblance to what we're seeing now. I always I always go back to the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta 2,500 years ago, in which, in the very early going in that fighting, uh, Athens uh, Athens is doing okay. It's 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 uh, con conducting a maritime peripheral campaign against the Spartan mainland to try to wear out the Spartans and all this sort of thing. But at that at that point, apparently coming from overseas from uh, North Africa. A plague makes its way way into into the city, which and just to make things worse, 
if you think if you think about us trying to do social distancing now, not being too close to our neighbors, at that point, the uh, Athenian strategy had required the entire region, basically all the people in the entire region, to come within the city walls. So everybody's packed into Athens at the same time. At the same time that this uh, this plague hits, about thirty percent thirty percent of the population as a whole falls and falls in the first uh, couple of years of war. So this and it's, and Thucydides, who wrote the history, makes makes much of the uh, of the, uh, the of the moral and social implications of this, and, and you, you can actually hear. I think this is a very pale echo of that, but it's uh, but it is uh, it, do, it is kind of a striking comparison. Well, with history as our guide, do you think there will be any near term effects on U.S. Navy strategy? I mean, is there some something that we exploit as a, a pejorative term, but uh, or conversely, is there something an enemy? might be trying to explain in the face of us, the world, Western nations being distracted by the pandemic. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, the, I wrote a piece of comparing the Athenian plague to the situation in China when it really, when it was mostly comp- uh, confined to China before it made its way to Europe and the United States and so forth. And uh, my, I guess my takeaway from that one was don't assume that, don't assume that China is going to hunker down because it's uh, inwardly focused, work, working on the plague, work, doing all this sort of stuff. It might actually, it might actually do what the Athenians did. The Athenians did not hunker down. Even after losing a third of their population, they went nuts, uh, started going on the offensive, ultimately invaded Sicily, a place as big as mainland Greece. I mean, this, so if you, if you, if you take that bit of historical insight, you could, you could actually see China do, China, uh, to trying to take advantage now that it's hit these shores, it might actually uh, engage in some adventurism. So, so there's that down on the if it's down towards the uh, down, t- down towards the operational level. I could certainly I could certainly see our uh, adversaries uh, watching our operational practices to see what our ships are doing, what our marines are doing, and so forth. I think that uh, I think that uh, President Xi Jinping has made uh, great promises to the Chinese people. Uh, as far as regaining all the territory once ruled by Imperial China, all of these things you hear about in the news every day. If he were to see, if he were to see opportunity, it is uh, at least conceivable that he might act. So we do need to keep an eye on our adversaries, even at this time in which we are rightly uh, uh, focused on the health of our populace. Jim, what's going on up at the Naval War College? Have you guys gone to, or I know you're on a sort of sabbatical right now, but has the staff gone to uh, teaching remotely, distance learning, uh, you know, online learning, et cetera? Yeah, we're so we're sort of in the same status as you all, where the college is open, but uh, but all classes are now online. Faculty meetings are all online. In fact, we're about to have an all hands call online as soon as I uh, sign off with you all. This. Uh, in a few minutes. So yes, we are certainly we are certainly in, uh, doing more or less the same thing. That, in fact, I think the Naval Academy led the way, and, and we followed their uh, we followed their lead. You started seeing the service academies do it, and then we did it uh, within a few hours. So it's it's actually I know I know we're all sort of kicking the dirt about it. It's actually been kind of a beautiful thing to watch from my standpoint. Not I mean not having to do all this stuff, but it's been it's been heartening to watch my colleagues uh, get out there online, think about exchange ideas, and basically get ready. So we've been through uh, the first week of classes, and it sounds like everything went uh, relatively well. There are some obvious, uh, obvious things like you don't get it through with nearly as much material just because of the mechanics of uh, having the students write in and all this kind of stuff. But uh, but I think it's going all right. Well, that's what I was going to ask. What's the net effect to the student experience, and will the course stay on schedule? Where when does this cohort graduate and press on to their next commands? 
Yeah, well, we're in the spring term, so most of, most of the students uh, in this current cohort will graduate in June. We're, we're still on track to do that. I think we'll, I think we'll st- the, the way our course in particular is set up, I think it actually lends itself to this sort of this sort of asynchronous approach because lectures lectures mostly I have a new one that I have to go in and give, but the, the ones that are the same from previous years can be uh, the students can watch them at their leisure. Uh, the, we, our seminars are once a week once a week for half a day, so you can, so there's a fair amount of uh, a fair amount of time in there that, that you can turn to advantage. So I think that's uh, I, I wouldn't say that I think they're going to get the, the the same experience. I mean that that in, there's no replacing the in class uh, seminar experience, but I think uh, under the circumstances, I think it's uh, I think it's going to be okay. Well, the uh, Pentagon has uh, issued a sweeping stop movement order, right, to just limit the spread of the coronavirus. So uh, that includes PCS moves, not essential PCS moves right now. So it's going to be interesting to see this summer, uh, you know, which is the traditionally the the height of the PCS move time how you know how many does that does that stop movement order continue does it get relaxed so that you move key essential people is it essential to go to education and training or not right so these are all things that are going to play out big decisions that will play out over the next couple of months here at the naval academy we're going to watch impacts potentially to uh, graduation right to whether school whether they the mid come back and reform the brigade right now they're on an extended you know, spring break for another couple of weeks, at least until I think yeah, the, at the least like I said, just to start. And yeah. we were wondering this this morning on our uh, virtual meeting: uh, what are the net effects going to be on commissioning week, and what are the down the road effects on people going to SWAS, going to flight school, you know, going to a whatever school, a, schools, a schools and whatever right. follow on training uh, will go on after folks finish at Great Lakes. If I'm on deployment or in a deployed status or overseas waiting to get relieved, um, very much eagerly looking forward to returning to my family. And there is a stop on PCS orders. How's that going to affect everything? I mean, career paths, promotion boards. Uh, this is uncharted waters, to it, use it really a bad is. pun. Yeah, it really is. Um, so. Well, yeah, you mentioned the old uh, the old uh, piece I did for you all on competitors having a CNR readiness status, which basically argued that they can do things to try to wear us out in peacetime, uh, such as China, you know, mounting, mounting flights around Japan, whatever the case may be. But I think there's one way to think about this uh, pandemic is just to look at the readiness impact of that when you're canceling, like you said, canceling education, you're canceling training at a time when we are getting really serious about education. I have a couple of colleagues who are about to retire. I have no idea what that's going to ha- what impact that will have on them. But I mean, they, they, but there are even more direct impacts like canceling uh, multinational exercises and stuff like that. That means we're not going to be as good if something does happen. So I think that's uh, something to to bear in mind moving ahead. Great points. Hey, Jim, I know you started your career in the Navy as a surface warfare officer. For our listeners who aren't as familiar with your background, uh, describe a little bit where you've been and, and how you came to uh, go from a naval officer to a professor at the Naval War College and your interest in strategy and how that grew over the years. Whenever, so whenever some young person asks me how I got where I am, I always, I always tell them not to think that there was some sort of master plan that got me where I where I was. It's uh, if, if I were to plot it on a chart, it would look like I've uh, veered back and forth a number of times. I uh, went through uh, the Naval ROTC program at Vanderbilt, uh, graduated in '87, uh, came to SWAS, which you mentioned a minute ago. Uh, served in uh, surface ships, came back to came back to Newport in 1991 after sea duty. 
Uh, I taught engineering at the Surface Warfare School, and at the same time, at the same time, I did uh, the Naval War College's uh, fleet seminar program, as well as master's work out in town. Got the basically got the academic bug. Uh, decided uh, decided when I came up to uh, to my net, my next next logical place to break off my career, I decided I would try to do it from the other side of the podium. So at that point, I uh, I applied to the Fletcher School up at Tufts University in uh, in Medford, Massachusetts. Uh, it went on for a doctorate there. Thought I, I thought I might be able to stay on, but uh, my wife was a librarian. I was a, I, I was an, a, a poor PhD student, and she was offered a job at the law school in uh, Athens, Georgia, the University of Georgia's law school. So off we went uh, in 2001. While I was there, I started writing for the local paper. The, the, the gentleman who would be my future boss actually got in touch with me and asked me to start working part-time as an editor for their small journal on nonproliferation at the university. Uh, and at that point, it sort of snowballed into a faculty post over the next few years. That provided a platform to get back to Newport in 2007, and uh, having uh, having gotten away, gotten away with several uh, several violent changes of pace, I, I certainly have no uh, no desire ever to leave. Yeah, so that's that's sort of how we got here. Like like I said, no grand plan at all. It's just uh, trying to be nimble and do the right thing at the time. And you are the Wiley Chair of Strategy, Naval Strategy at the uh, Naval War College. Is it, talk about that a little bit. It's a new, it's a new post. It's a, a it's a modestly endowed chair of maritime strategy. I said my the way I see my purpose for the chair is to try to not only not only just in sort of in general terms spread out uh, uh, strategic thought within the services, but especially to push it down to the uh, down to the more junior levels. As as most of our listeners will. Uh, well know that it when you're a junior person you're a newly commissioned officer you're a senior enlisted person whatever the case may be you don't have a lot of time to read about uh, history and you don't have a lot of time to think about bigger things like strategy because you're so consumed with uh, qualifying as an engineering officer to watch whatever the case may be the idea the idea that i've uh, that I've been pursuing is to first to write the, the, the small book that I did for you all in, in Annapolis, uh, and it appeared in December. It's a brief guide to maritime strategy. It's designed to be read, I hope, in one sitting, but certainly it's certainly in a very few hours that uh, a junior officer or a senior enlisted uh, person might actually find time to read. So I start with the basics. I talk about what sea power is, how strategy works, and sort of, but by the end, I make my way down toward the operational level and talk about things like anti-access and all that stuff that uh, that we read about in the in the news every day. So the written product was the, and I tried to write it for myself when I was 25 years old and a lieutenant or a lieutenant JG, whatever the case may be. So that's how I've tried to pitch that. In concert with that, I've started, and unfortunately, it's going to get uh, sidetracked now. But I've started a, I've started a lecture series for junior people in which I give. A couple hour, a couple hour talk and Q and A on maritime strategy based on the book. I've been doing it regularly at the Austria Candidate School. I've done it, uh, done it down at the Submarine School in uh, in Groton, and that's kind of where we stand right now. But again, try to try to push this down, push education down to the lower levels so that uh, our students don't show up in mid career here in Newport, never having been exposed to the works of Mahan or Corbett or Cosbitz, uh, who were the big thinkers you want to uh, you want to we want to talk about are. So I think the more educated the force is, the better off we all are starting earlier. It's just just the thing to do. Have you thought about recording that lecture series on video so we could put it on our YouTube channel? You know, if, if, you, if we have the technical wherewithal to do it, I would love to do it. In fact, in fact, I had an exchange with the OCS, uh, the young lieutenant who works with me over at OCS just the other day, and I was like, dude, I wish, boy, I wish we had uh, recorded this thing for uh, 
so that it could be posted online. But yeah, if you want to do that, I would be uh, I would be glad to try to do that. I think it would be good. You know, we we were having our strategic planning for the Naval Institute last year. One of the things that came out of that, uh, another idea from our CEO, was the idea of creating some content and and uh, amassing it on our website in one particular place under the rubric uh, life hacks for the JO or life hacks for junior people, right? And so um, we've got a couple authors right now working on some pieces that will fit into that uh, category. We have a young surface warfare officer who's on her first uh, shore tour post uh, uh, her division officer tours, who's writing a series of seven articles about you know, what she wished she had known when she was an ensign showing up to her first ship, right? I've got a flight uh, a flight instructor down at Pensacola who's flying uh, T-6 Texans, and he's going to write us a, a couple of things on what he wished he had known and also get some of his fellow flight ins- flight school instructors to, to uh, chip into that, cool. um, that effort. You know, what I wished I'd known when I was an ensign showing up at Pensacola, you know, 18 months ago or now for him 10, 15 years ago, right? But I think... What you've done for us with Strategy Matters, uh, sort of bite-sized takes at what, um, you know, think about things strategically, think about and, you know, exercise your mind beyond the lifelines of your ship or your squadron or your the tactics of your platform and start to think about the, the role that the Navy plays in the national defense strategy in the global um, security sphere and what are the different elements that go into strategy? As you said, before you show up as lieutenant commander or commander at Newport or at, um, you know, the Army War College or the Air, you know, Command and Staff College for uh, down at Maxwell Air Force Base, you want to have thought through some of those things earlier in your career than, than you know, kind of waiting to the end to sort of see how it all fits together in a, in a big picture. Yeah, you you can certainly count on me to take part in that project. That sounds uh, really great. Dude, you, you mentioned the Army. I think the, uh, there are some things that the Army does that are worth uh, studying as we try to put together something like that. Uh, for example, the Army the Army officers generally come to to, to uh, Newport uh, for their master for their masters work already having studied uh, planning the planning process and so forth, which is something the Navy just we just don't do early on in our careers. So they, I think the Army is actually better than we are at. Seeing that, seeing that it's, uh, education is an ongoing thing, and it shouldn't really stop with commissioning and then pick back up at, uh, at mid-career. So we might, it might be something, might be worth reaching out to uh, to the people in the West Point or whatever the case may be. That's a great point, and it, it, it jives with what my my um, experience was when I was going through the Naval War College and then later at the National Defense University. I, I always thought in academic settings, the Army officers. They, they just had a better grounding of, uh, you know, those sort of basics of strategy. They had read Clausewitz a lot more than the, you know, sort of page check that naval officers have tended to do. Uh, and they were ready for it, maybe because they, they had a little more time to do that earlier in their careers. They spent more time in school, was my experience, but they, they, they really... Um, they put a premium on education, which, as you mentioned earlier, the Navy is just now, with its chief learning officer, with its education for sea power uh, effort, seems to be putting a, a bigger premium on education. Uh, and then all of that is happening and collides with the reality now of the coronavirus and, and how are we going to deal with that. So it's a, certainly an interesting time for the Navy's educational system. Yeah, I think the commitment's there. So I think I think this will all sort itself out. So the, the, the tech that I've been involved with in, in my limited experience thus far in this crisis has been, has been pretty good. And things, it's, it, it feels like people are sorting things out. So I think it'll slow us down. But I don't. Uh, I actually, like I mentioned, I, I, I tend to worry more about uh, 
the impact on maintenance of ships or uh, having exercises among the services or with their allies and stuff, and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, so on, on the education side, it's certainly going to set us back a bit. Well, let's remind our audience that the relationship between the Naval Institute and the Naval War College is fundamental. Naval War College was created from an article in one of the early issues, the exact year 1870-something. It wasn't the first issue, but it was uh, not too <laughs> I, I long was, after that. I, I want to say it was 1879. Okay, 1879. Stephen, Stephen B. Stephen Lewis. B. Yeah, Lewis. It, was, it was something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so he wrote an article called War Stories. If you're a member of the Naval Institute. War, war Schools. War Schools, rather, not War Stories. War, stories. <laughs> war Schools, <laughs> um, which uh, if you're a member of the Naval Institute, you can access this in the archives. It's a very cool article where he asked the question, basically, hey, we have a Naval Academy for undergraduate studies. Why don't we have an institution for postgraduate and advanced military learning? And that article in Proceedings, the Proceedings of the U.S. Naval Institute, came to the attention of Congress. And in time, the Naval War College was funded and built. And Stephen B. Luce, the author of that article, became the first president of the Naval War College. And there's a building here named Luce Hall, and there's a building up in Newport named Luce Hall. Right, Jim? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, in fact, I used to work in Luce Hall my last year on active duty when the College of Business Education was over. I absolutely loved working in the, in the building where my hands office was and where if you ever see that uh, famous picture out there on the internet of uh, Teddy Roosevelt standing with a bunch of naval officers at the college, that, that, those were our steps looking out onto the lawn. That's why we have a picture of Admiral Yamamoto when he was a commander standing outside the building looking down the lawn as well. So it's yeah, it's, it's definitely a venerable place. Luce is actually a fascinating character and actually a really good writer if you ever look up his letters. But uh, but of course, I guess his main legacy. Uh, in that sense, was that he recruited Mahan to be the first? I guess he, I guess Mahan was my first uh, predecessor as a uh, strategy professor at the college, and of course that was when he he made his uh, most famous book, uh, which we still read today, "The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, 1660 to 1783." That was basically compiled from his lectures uh, that he gave at the college. It's, it's kind of hard to imagine actually seeing the seeing all that uh, dense uh, verbiage about the age of sail. Uh, read that in class, but uh, but that's, that was how things were done in the day. Well, if, if you we've mentioned Trent Hone's Learning War book quite often uh, over the past couple of years on the show, and we've had Trent as yeah, a guest. A um, but what you see in there is the Naval Academy, the Naval War College, and one or two others academic centers of excellence were the centers of tactical thought. And it wasn't codified until the early 1900s by Sims and Fisk and the insurgents into something that the Navy from the top down had control over. It was more or less what the cognoscenti, what the intelligentsia uh, came up with at places like the War College. And you don't really think of the War College as a center of tactical thought, no offense. Um, but I mean, I'm talking about creating fleet executing doctrine. Uh, but back in the early days, that's exactly what happened there. It was like Top Gun and any other warfare, especially Center of Excellence, was centered around the Naval War College. Yeah, that's right. I think I, I think tracing the history of the college is fascinating. I, mean, I, I don't think it, I don't think I'm bridged that at all. The uh, it's a, I think we've actually, and I'm not sure whether I think this is a good thing or a bad thing or indifference, but it's, it, it has happened. If you go back to uh, another one of our great presidents, Admiral Stansfield Turner, who passed on a few years ago, uh, when he came to the college in the 70s, he came with a mandate to basically make the curriculum what it is today. But it was, even if you just looked at the, uh, 
uh, names that he said that we were going to give the departments. There would be the strategy department, my departments. There would be the management department, which is now the national security de- decision making department, or excuse me, national security affairs department. That was another permutation. And then the, the tactics department is now called joint maritime operations. So I think that if you even just looked at the names, they, 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 they suggest that there's been a departure from a pure tactical uh, emphasis, even in that uh, one core course. Even though if you read the curriculum, which I did last summer, it's a, uh, a lot of it is pitched at the at the high tactical level, which is which is kind of neat. They they look at the one of their key, I guess their two uh, key historical cases that they look at over in the GMO department, the the former tactics department, are the, the Battle of Leyte Gulf. What happens after all the pieces are in play there in that are in place there in October of 1944, and they also look at the at the uh, at the Falklands War, which is a really fascinating conflict and one that our Chinese friends have studied uh, quite closely because they see. Some similarity to the United States trying to come to the to the assistance of, of Taiwan. So you have a you have a big Western Navy trying to come over a very long distance, and then you have a local land power trying to make to make things tough on that uh, on that opponent. So it's a it's a, it's a very it's a very good course, but uh, how tactical it is, I don't uh, I don't know. So we're since we're at thirty thousand feet here. Um, for the listeners, there are basically two curricula that are taught at the War College: a junior curriculum and a senior curriculum what what's the difference and what what is the student body of each what's the the, the difference and, and what's the point of each yeah this was a this was actually a pretty re, a pretty recent in fact i i missed the opening phases of what they call differentiation which is what you're talking about the the bifurcating of the curriculum into what we call the intermediate level course or the more colloquial the junior course and then we have our senior level course which is uh your, your captains and commanders and their uh, equivalents from the other services so the, the basically the the junior course the the ILC is is based at the the level at which the course was always based it was always an operational level course which is about how to win wars how do we take how do we use battles and engagements for the purpose of the war as Clausewitz would say so that's a that's that's a much that, that's a lower level than you would be talking about than in the senior course which is pitched at the grand strategic level where you take uh, uh, it's based on a series of historical cases like the other course, but it's up, but at the same time, these are very long-term, 30,000-foot books at big periods in history. For example, uh, when we studied the Napoleonic Wars, we, we tend to start a little bit back in 1763 with the end of the Seven Years' War and use that to set the stage, looking at the American Revolution a little bit, looking at the War of 1812 a little bit, but again, just taking that uh, that big sort of grand strategic book. So that we consider things like the economic foundations of uh, military power, we look at diplomacy in more in more depth. So again, it's a, so they're they're designed to be complementary. I will tell you that the, the theory is that students would come twice and do both courses. That almost never happens. I think I've had I think I've had three uh, three students do it in the uh, uh, in the 13 years that I've been back, and two of those were real outliers. I've only actually seen one person order it in under the under the, uh, the official scheme to do the courses. So. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of talk about uh, about what's going to become of the uh, bifurcation, but uh, but that's where it stands right now. So you have a course in grand strategy, and then you have a course in operations and strategy. Talking about Luce and Mahan and the Naval uh, War College and the Naval Institute, um, so it reminds me of a couple different things. Let's pull those uh, strings together a little bit. Uh, so first off, I wanted to. Um, announced that we recently in, in early this month our editorial board met and we picked the winners of this year's general prize essay contest uh, so the winner is lieutenant commander jeff vandenagel 
Uh, second prize is Hunter Styers, who is a protege of Jim Holmes. Uh, and Hunter was the winner of last year's general prize essay contest. And uh, third prize is Lieutenant Commander Josh Portzer, uh, who's a P3, uh, P8 NFO. Uh, Jeff Vandenagel is a submariner. And, and so pull in this a little bit more. So, Jim, you just mentioned that uh, at the War College, there's a big emphasis on the Falklands Islands War. And Jeff Vandenagel's piece, he won the CNO Naval History Essay Contest last year, 2019, with an article called Fighting Along a Knife Edge, which was about the Falklands War, and extrapolating lessons from that, as you just said, for a maritime power, Great Britain in this case, which had to go a very long distance for an away game against a, uh, a land power, and uh, that, you know, applying those lessons from the Falklands and the, you know, Great Britain, the UK, the, the Royal Navy's experience there to how the U.S. Navy would have to fight in a very long distance away game in the South China Seas um, or the East China Sea. So great piece. Jeff Vandenagel, uh, you know, a rock star in terms of uh, a J.O. writing uh, for the Naval Institute and really doing well in our essay contests. Um, and we, he was a guest on the podcast. I can't recall right. exactly right. which we, episode that was. Yeah, we but, had him uh, on the podcast late, late last year talking about that yeah. uh, Look article. Back through the archives and you can easily find that, uh, exactly. that episode. Really yep. a good one. The other thing to remind folks is these essay contests are judged in the blind. So the fact that there are repeat winners or you know first place or second place is, is merely coincidence and a testimony to quality of writing. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's one woman on our staff who knows the authors, uh, and, and nobody twists her arm. Uh, we we wait until the, <laughs> judge, the judging is done, and then we literally we open the envelope. And so uh, we picked. We had a 99 essays this year for the general prize essay contest. Uh, the staff winnowed those down to the top 10 that went to the editorial board. The editorial board met uh, on March 5th. Uh, we talked about all 10 of those articles. Uh, we will publish in one form or another all 10 of them. The top three winners were, were selected, and then we opened the envelope and, just, and, and saw who uh, the winners were, and it was interesting. Jim, tell us a little bit about your experience working with Hunter Styers and how did he become, as a, as a student at, uh, at Columbia University, how did he become a, um, uh, also sort of a, a student or a researcher at the Naval War College? Yeah, he's kind of a, Hunter's kind of a prodigy. In fact, I, I thought that was what you were going to say when you said protege. I thought you were going to say prodigy because it's actually literally true. Hunter, uh, I did. He did. I can't. I can't exactly remember. I would have to email him and ask him how this happened exactly. But he either knew my former boss and current colleague uh, John Maurer, uh, our longest-serving faculty member in the department right now. And I think John put him in touch with me after he graduated from high school. He came to me as a high school student, not a college student, the way we usually take. Uh, he still looks like he's a high school student. <laughs> he's about. He, I mean, he's, he's super indeed, smart, but he looks first, like he's eighteen. Yeah. So he's a. He, he's the. I've had a couple of uh, research assistants who have really stood out, and I think he probably stood out more than any of them. And he just had a natural, he just sort of had a natural uh, enthusiasm for the for the subject matter. He came and he, in fact, he came back a couple of years while he was at Columbia and did, uh, well, I did, I sort of turned him loose and said, go, go poke around in the archives and did, said, see what you want to do. And uh, you know what he did? He dug, he dug up troves and troves of material on the U.S. Asiatic fleet, our fleet over in the Philippines uh, from, well, depending on how you want to date it from the 1830s up until its destruction in 1942 at, at Japanese hands. But uh, he was mostly interested in what happened right before the Second World War. And he's uh, he's done some writing for you all on that, for the Naval College Review on that. So he's talking about doing a book on it. 
Uh, so yeah, just kind of almost a almost a once. Uh, yeah, I would almost describe him as a once in a lifetime personality. I always, you know, you, you guys were talking about all the file the prizes. I always, I, I never met Admiral Wiley, J.C. Wiley in life. He, he died here in 1993. I actually happened to sing at his funeral. I had no idea who he was, but I would have loved to ask him exactly what he thought about the proceedings contest, in which uh, his his essays that fit into his his seminal book, Military Strategy: uh, General Theory of Power Control. Those all those only got uh, honorable mention in the proceedings uh, contest of his years. I, I always wondered whether he uh, whether he uh, what he thought about that, and I would have loved to ask him. Well, Alfred Thayer Mahan took uh, honorable mention in the first uh, Naval Institute essay contest, which was, I think, in nineteen. Uh, it's our eighteen seventy nine. So, kind of interesting that Mahan was not the winner. Interesting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was a famous. There was a famous exchange, which you all undoubtedly know more about than I. But uh, after the after the Russo-Japanese War, he at Mahan and uh, and. Uh, Oh, Admiral Sims, W.S. Sims got into, back when he was a lieutenant, got into a huge, uh, a huge uh, sort of uh, food fight in proceedings about uh, about the virtues of all big gun naval uh, battleships and so forth. Mahan liked a, a mixed battery of big and, and secondary guns, and Sims, uh, Sims actually argued that uh, the, the Japanese had it right, the British and the Japanese had it right with all big gun uh, warships. Strangely, uh, Mahan, did, uh, Mahan did something which has always, always really endeared me to. I mean, he, he actually admitted in print that he was wrong, and I I think that's something you don't uh, run into among senior people these days. Uh, so you, you mentioned that you're on sabbatical right now. Uh, you're sort of in battery or reserve uh, for getting back into the classroom when the classroom opens back up again. So in addition to writing for us, uh, what's uh, what are you keeping busy with? Well, I try to put the, I try to put out a, a, a decent sized essay once a week, uh, either with you all or over usually over the national interest as well, which people can find online if they if they choose. The big thing that I have going on right now is also for the Naval Institute. I have, I'm doing another short book. I, I have a belief that we are uh, way short on short books, and I'm just I'm trying to do, keep them short for the same reasons as with the Maritime Strategy book. But I, uh, it's actually it's an outgrowth of the, an article I did for you all. I think appeared probably in early 2019 called "The Habits of Strategy," and I basically just I basically just make a very simple point. Pulled that pulling from uh, the philosophies of Aristotle and Plato and so forth. I, I simply argue that if you want to be a good strategist, find out what great strategists do and make it a habit. Practice doing it every day. And therefore, if you if you believe in Aristotle and that, all the greats of philosophy, then you can ultimately upgrade your own performance there. So I, it's another in the series based on uh, history and biography, philosophy, strategic theory, obviously. So I'm trying to come up with a, a nice short book that, uh, that will make the rounds and uh, uh, hopefully, have some, hopefully have some influence on this educational process that we're all undertaking. It sounds like another great book for us to uh, break up into short videos uh, or or uh, podcast kind of episodes uh, to put out there for uh, f- particularly for junior officers who have a chance to you know digest it you know one chapter at a time or forty five minutes at a time while they're transiting to and from a shipyard or you know San Diego Norfolk Naval Base wherever they're going it'd be great uh, kind of content for the the life hacks. Just one more question. This was uh, while we were at West. Um, the congressional testimony was happening. We had the Sea Service chiefs out there on day one. The CNO, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Uh, and what hasn't come out yet from uh, DOD is the force structure assessment. Um, and and so the number three hundred fifty five ships was 
very much a question on people's minds as they're thinking, you know, is the, is the Navy going to build the 355? What's the right number? Is a number even appropriate? What's the right mix? High, low, unmanned, manned, aircraft carriers, et cetera, right? So as you think about strategy, and strategy is, you know, ends, ways, and means. Um, uh, so 355 is definitely means to get to a, a naval strategy. Uh, what are your thoughts on the size of the force structure, the size of the force, um, and, and relative to the the, uh, the missions that the Navy might have to do vis-a-vis via, via regional power like Iran or growing global power like uh, China or, uh, you know, sort of a status quo pain in the ass power like Russia? I guess the, the, the overall point is that strategy and it's at its most basic is about setting and enforcing priorities. And it's, it's, it's really, really hard to do when you're an established global power like the United States. Because if I, if, for example, if I argue for scaling back in the Middle East, basically take, letting Europeans and Japan or whoever take charge of uh, policing the Persian Gulf, you're going to have it, you're going to have an outcry from Middle East advocates. I mean, it's just something about trying to cut down on your commitments so that you can focus your finite resources where you need them most, which is uh, which is the Indo-Pacific. If, if you listen to the Pentagon, and I personally have no deep, no reason to doubt that their uh, sincerity about that. So that's a that, that's a major thing. That's a, that's a political question and uh, something that I don't think we really come to terms with. We keep we keep scattering resources all over the map and uh, sending ourselves out, and I don't think it's ultimately going to work out unless we build a much bigger force, much more. So, sort of like the one that we were familiar with during the Cold War, the 600 ship Navy and, uh, and affiliated joint services. I don't think I don't see that happening at all. Uh, second point, as you, as you go down towards the operational level, I would say I, I think it's actually, and I hate to I hate to completely dismiss numbers, but if you, you have to think that the point of the point of strategy, the point of operational design, is to put more combat power at the right place in, in the right time than your adversary does. You make yourself stronger at the decisive place and time. And thus you overpower them. I think that is, I think we really have to, we really have to keep the focus on that. What systems, what hardware, what, uh, what tactics and, and techniques and procedures help us put the most combat power at the right place in the right time? That, uh, that, so I think it could be, I think it could be 355. I think depending on how all these futuristic technologies play out, it could be less than that. I tend to think it's actually more the, the great Wayne Hughes, who you all know down in the, down in Annapolis, uh, argued that you could add a flotilla of single mission ships to the force. You know, whole, whole lots of them, swarms of them to the force for very little money uh, to, to act as missile carriers or whatever the case may be. So there's a so there's really a lot of there's a really a lot of uh, things going on out there. But we do need to keep uh, to keep our mind on strategy. So just the last point, I think that it, just enough that power, just enough combat power is probably not enough. We got into a bad habit after the uh, after the Cold War, and I think especially after September 11th, when we were doing land warfare in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan and places like that, of thinking that we should apply just enough resources to get the mission done in peacetime. That was when you saw things like uh, minimum manning. You saw all of these things that were designed to cut back on costs, but uh, that doesn't work in battle. I mean, you're going to take hits. You're going to need uh, you're going to need uh, an excess of an excess of resources. So I think that's I think that's also a big part of this uh, question as well. What the final figure is, I don't know. But uh, those, those are the, 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 the pointers that I would offer. Jim, thanks. Those are some uh, great sound bites. There are strategies about setting priorities. You got to be stronger than the enemy at the decisive place and time. And just enough is not enough. Uh, three great examples of how victory begins at the Naval Institute. Thanks for being on the on the show today, and I hope you and your family uh, stay safe and healthy up in uh, the Newport area. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure.